When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. aftermath of this scene, the miraculous identification of the chief judge's murderer, the multitudes disperse, and Nephi is left alone. This whole episode began with him in a vertical conversation with God that then turned into a horizontal crying of repentance to the multitudes. Well, now the multitudes have dispersed and the horizontal returns to the vertical. Chapter 10, verse 1, the people divide hither and thither and go their ways, leaving Nephi alone as he was standing in the midst of them. So in verse 2, Nephi begins going home. And what does he do along the way? He ponders upon the things which the Lord has shown unto him. I love that this is always on his mind. Verse 3, it came to pass, as he was thus pondering, cast down because of the wickedness of the people of the Nephites. Remember, this was never about him. It's not a matter of, ha-ha, I've been vindicated. I showed them who was boss, that I knew and I was right. No, it's about them, and they're still wrong. They're still wicked. They've got to repent. So cast down by this wickedness, by their secret works of darkness, no matter how much he's done to draw them into the light. It came to pass, as he was thus pondering in his heart, behold, a voice came unto him. So in chapter 7, Nephi was cast down by the wickedness of the people and spoke to God. In chapter 10, Nephi is cast down by the wickedness of the people and God speaks to him. Verse 4, Blessed art thou, Nephi, for those things which thou hast done. For I have beheld how thou hast with unweariness declared the word, which I have given unto thee, unto this people. And thou hast not feared them, and hast not sought thine own life, but hast sought my will, and to keep my commandments. What a beautiful verse. That became one of my favorite words in Spanish on my mission because it had so many syllables. Indefatigablemente. Indefatigably would be the exact translation. Fatigue, you can hear it as the root of that word. You just don't get tired. You never quit. You don't stop, Nephi. You have fully embraced your mission in your days. And with unweariness, you pursue it. You don't seek your own will. You seek mine. Talk about a perfect foil for the people he's trying to teach who only cared to do their will. Now, as a result of that, verse 5, because thou hast done this with such unweariness, behold, I will bless thee forever. You see, if you never get tired of obeying me, then I will never grow tired of blessing you. I can be unwearying too. I will make thee mighty in word and in deed, in faith and in works. Mightier than you already are, because you've made yourself mighty in those things through a lifetime of discipleship. And then comes the ultimate promise. 
Yea, even that all things shall be done unto thee according to thy word. Really? All things? You say it and it'll happen? Can you imagine getting a blank check from God? Well, how can God afford that degree of delegation? Last line of verse 5. For thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to my will. You've proven that already, Nephi. You've proven that you can be totally trusted. That has reassured me that my power is safe with you. So you can have it. Now he explains more about this blank check, this power. We would call it the sealing power from verses 6 through 10. I love how he begins it. Behold, thou art Nephi, and I am God. As if to say, keep it straight, Nephi. I'm giving you my power, but it is my power I'm giving you. You're Nephi, and that's awesome. You're incredible. But I'm God. So don't lose sight of the power source here. He then calls some additional witnesses to the stand himself, having already seen similar things happen in previous chapters. Behold, I declare it unto thee in the presence of mine angels, that ye shall have power over this people. You want to smite the earth with famine, with pestilence, with destruction, according to their wickedness? Then you say it, and it'll happen. Verse 7, I give unto you power. Whatsoever ye shall seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Thus shall ye have power among this people, not over this people which is not what Nephi was ever after to begin with. Remember, he wasn't trying to raise himself above them, as they accused, but to have power among them, so that as one of them, he could help lead them in the right direction, bring them all home. You seal it on earth, I'll seal it in heaven. You loose it on earth, I'll loose it up here. Talk about complete power of attorney. That is what God is giving his prophet here. Now that complete power of attorney, that sealing power, it's the same power that Jesus promised Peter when he gave him the keys of the kingdom back in Matthew 16. It's the same sealing power that was promised Joseph Smith with the coming of Elijah to the Kirtland Temple in 1836. It's that same sealing power that binds a family together in the temple and can assure that family that they will be bound eternally in the heavens as well as they are faithful. Now belief in that power given to a mere mortal requires a lot of faith on our part. And it's that faith that we're about to see manifest in Nephi beautifully. But let me take a quick second and just share an experience I had years ago where it was faith in the sealing power that was exactly what was needed. I was living in Tennessee at the time. I'd been invited by another congregation to come and explain the restored gospel to them. I had done a lot of that when I lived there. The Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Catholics, the Episcopalians, the Disciples of Christ. Great experiences, and most of it was spent Q&A. Just what questions do you have about the church that I can help you understand? It was one of those Q&A sessions that a sweet little old lady turned not so sweet for a moment. And she almost got in my face and said, why couldn't I go to my own granddaughter's wedding? Now, you don't have to be a genius to figure out what she was referring to. Sure enough, she'd had a granddaughter who had joined the church met a Latter-day Saint, decided to get married in the temple, and that's when Grandma couldn't come to her own granddaughter's wedding. There was a lot of personal feeling here. I recognized that. And so I found myself saying something I'd never said before. You see, often we talk about the need to be worthy to enter the temple. But I realized if I focused on that, then what have I done to this sweet Grandma? I've just branded her unworthy. The reason you couldn't come to your own granddaughter's wedding is because you weren't worthy to go. That's probably not the case. 
she was probably just as worthy as everyone else that was able to go. So what was the issue? It wasn't worthiness. It was faith. And so I asked her, do you believe that Joseph Smith saw Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ? And that kind of took her aback. She said, uh, no offense, but no, I don't believe that. I said, oh, no offense taken. I can't blame you for not believing. But I do believe that that happened. So next question, do you believe that Joseph Smith had priesthood keys restored to him by heavenly messengers from ancient dispensations? And she was like, oh, I didn't even know you guys believed that. But no, I don't believe that. I'm like, oh, and I can't blame you, but I do. So with those priesthood keys, do you believe that Joseph Smith received the sealing power to bind on earth and have it bound in heaven? Do you believe that? And again, she said, no, no offense, but, but I don't believe that. I said, none taken. But I do. You see, in a Latter-day Saint temple ceremony, the couple is not just married till death do you part, but they are sealed for time, this life, and all eternity. And that takes authority. Authority to stare death in the face and say, you have to bow to this ordinance you cannot break this couple apart. This will not be till death do you part. You see, I am binding them together on earth and they will be bound in heaven. That's what the sealing power does. And so I said to this sweet grandma, when I go to an LDS temple sealing, it is not as a spectator. It is going as one meant to add my faith to the stockpile. I am willing something into existence. I am believing in the impossible. To say to death, you can't break up this couple? Nobody has the guts to say that. That's why every minister, every justice of the peace will always say, till death do you part. I've got no control on the other side. But for a sealer with the sealing power to be able to look at a couple in the temple and say that death cannot separate you, that takes authority that no one in the world claims except those who truly have received it from God. So I said to this sweet grandma, when I go to that temple ceiling, it is in full faith that what is happening there is being honored in heaven. If you don't believe those things are happening, then number one, you haven't missed anything. Come to the reception. Party with everyone. I know you care about this probably more than anyone else. It's your granddaughter after all. But in the sealing ceremony itself, it is your faith, that unwavering belief that we need. And you don't have it. And I can't blame you for not having it. But I do. I shared with her the story of the daughter of Jairus, who Jesus raised from the dead. When that sweet little 12-year-old girl passed away, friends and family from all over came. Remember when Jesus went into the house, the place was filled with mourners, devastated at the loss of this sweet little girl. They were worthy to be there. They were motivated out of love. But when Jesus said, don't mourn, because I'm here to raise her. I'm here to do the impossible, to make the impossible possible. And what they do? They laughed him to scorn. And I can't blame them. That was an extreme amount of faith he was asking from them. And they didn't have it. But guess who did? Mom, Dad, Peter, James, and John. Those five faith-filled people Jesus brought with him into the room where the body lay. Can you picture this? Faith was brought in and doubt was kept outside. 
Not unworthiness, not lack of love, simply lack of faith in the impossible. But there in that room, surrounded by people who could add their faith to the stockpile, Jesus did the impossible. He commanded death to step back and release its captive. He raised her. And then he immediately returned her to the crowd who had been there mourning. Not as an I told you so, but rather, I know you love her. Rejoice with her and she with you. You understand how we view the temple? It's that little group in the room of the daughter of Jairus, believing against doubt, hoping against hope, telling death to back down. And I believe that death obeys that someone has bound on earth and had it bound in heaven. By the end of our conversation, she said, that makes more sense. From that perspective, I don't belong in the temple and wouldn't want to be there without faith to add to the stockpile. The real rejoicing will happen at the reception, and that's where I'll be. It is an incredible amount of faith that God asks us to exercise in that sealing power. Well, Nephi has the power, and he has the faith to bring it forth. Now, in verse 8, 9, and 10, as the Lord finishes this promise to Nephi, he gives some interesting examples of what that sealing power might actually accomplish. Tearing a temple in half, for example, or reducing a mountain to nothingness, or even smiting these people with some kind of punishment for sin. Do we have faith in those who hold keys, priesthood authority, even when what they do with them seems counterintuitive? Why would you tear a temple in half? Or seems unnecessary? Why do you need to reduce a mountain to rubble? Or even seems hurtful? Why would you smite this people? Well, because often God's ways are higher than our ways. And if Nephi is told that he would never ask anything contrary to the will of God, it's that same laser-like focus on God's will that is motivating those with sealing keys in our day. Can we trust them, confident that they are only using authority as God would have them use it? And God does make it clear, one more hint, what Nephi was supposed to do with that power. Verse 11, Now behold, I command you that you shall go and declare unto this people that thus saith the Lord God, who is the Almighty. There's one last message I want you to deliver to them from me. Except ye repent, ye shall be smitten even unto destruction. Same thing you've been saying to them all along. But I hope that they know it's coming by way of authority. Now in 12, Nephi does what prophets seem to do as soon as they get a message from the Lord. He immediately acts upon it. Remember when Alma was leaving Ammonihah and the angel said, oh, give him another chance, and he turned around and ran back? No questions asked. Same thing here. Verse 12, when the Lord had spoken these words unto Nephi, he stopped what he was doing. He didn't go into his own house. He returned unto the multitude, scattered about upon the face of the land, and began to declare unto them the word of the Lord. Unfortunately, in 13, in spite of the fact he just performed a miracle among them, they still hardened their hearts. They still wouldn't hearken unto his words. In 15, it repeats their hardened hearts and unhearkening ears, but adds that they reviled him sought to lay their hands on him, cast him into prison, just what the judges had been hoping to do before. 
But, verse 16, the power of God was with him. They could not take him to cast him into prison. Even if they could, he'd had experiences there before. And what had happened? Encircled about by this protective, sanctifying fire. In this case, however, he was taken by the Spirit and conveyed away out of the midst of them. And thus he did go forth in the Spirit from multitude to multitude, declaring the word of God even until he had declared it unto them all or sent it forth among all the people. God wants to make sure the water gets to the end of the row. And so even if it takes some amazingly miraculous spirit conveyance from one place to the next, the word of God will go forth nobly, boldly, and independent, even miraculously when necessary. Now chapter 11 continues that downward spiral of hard-hearted people not hearkening to the voice of the prophet. Seen in that light, it's just another round of the pride cycle beginning. And that's exactly what chapter 11 is, another round of the pride cycle. Verse 1 and 2, contentions increase. There's wars throughout all the land. The secret band of robbers continues its work of destruction and wickedness. There's the pride and wickedness segment of the cycle. So what does Nephi decide to do? Well, he's going to nudge things towards destruction. Again, not in some kind of angry, let's get this out of my system kind of a thing, but in hopes of turning them on to repentance and humility. In verse 3, he cries unto the Lord. In verse 4, this is what he prays for. And to be honest, it's surprising that he would need to pray at all. He just got the blank check one chapter ago, right? Doesn't he remember? Whatever you say, it's going to happen. He does remember that. But he also remembers what the Lord said. Thou art Nephi and I am God. Keep it straight. Well, he's keeping it straight. So he prays to God that God will use his power. I hesitate to use power of attorney when the actual person is present to do his own will. Verse 4, he prays, O Lord, do not suffer that this people shall be destroyed by the sword. But, O Lord, rather let there be a famine in the land to stir them up in remembrance of the Lord their God. And perhaps they will repent and turn unto thee. That perhaps echoes the sometimes of Alma 32. When someone is compelled to be humble, sometimes they repent. Now, if they choose to be humble, then they choose to repent. That's, it's all the same choice, really. But for those on the cycle itself, for whom pride and wickedness naturally leads to destruction, I hope that destruction wakes them up and makes them choose to turn to the Lord for deliverance. But there's something here about the choice of destruction that's interesting. It's like Nephi is saying, yes, destruction is the next step on the cycle. The one hope that we have to pull them back to the Lord's side of the line. But can we not use the sword? Can we use famine instead? Because the sword, well, we saw that at the end of the war chapters. Yes, it softens some, but it hardens others. Fighting amongst themselves, sometimes that makes people worse, not want to be better. But famine... Who are you going to fight? There's nothing you can do about it. Your only hope is heaven. And so hopefully we turn to him. You see, this way, the solution, they will know when it comes that it was beyond their control, that they didn't just win their own deliverance. You can't just call down the rain. You've got to ask God for help. And in doing so, it will turn them to him. I hope so anyway. Well, verse 5, so it was done, according to the words of Nephi. Well, of course it was going to be done. God had already given him the sealing power. You want to seal the heavens? He specifically had said that back in chapter 10, verse 6. If you want to smite the earth with famine, then you've got the power to do so. 
Again, I love that Nephi has the power, but then acts as if he didn't. He doesn't just declare or pronounce a famine. He prays for one. Thank you for the blank check, God. I'd much rather that you draw money out of your own account. But so God does. Now the pride and wickedness in verses 1 and 2 now turns into destruction in verse 5 and 6. No longer destruction by the sword, but destruction by famine. The earth was smitten, it was dry, it wouldn't yield forth its grain in the season of grain. The whole earth was smitten, even among the Lamanites as well as among the Nephites. Sometimes the righteous are called upon to suffer alongside the wicked. If you remember the plagues of Egypt, there were some plagues that completely separated the two. It affected the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. But there came a time where even Israelite crops were being destroyed. Sometimes the righteous are called upon to suffer as well, especially if that keeps the wicked from somehow feeding off them unrighteously. But again, it's always worse among the wicked, as it says at the end of 6. They did perish by thousands in the more wicked parts of the land. But as long as we trust in the pride cycle and hope for the best, what's the next stage? Verse 7, when the people saw that they were about to perish by famine, they began to remember the Lord their God. They began to remember the words of Nephi, and they began to plead with their chief judges and their leaders to ask Nephi for deliverance. Behold, we know thou art a man of God. Therefore cry unto the Lord our God, they're starting to claim him again, that he would turn away from us this famine, lest all the words which thou hast spoken concerning our destruction be fulfilled. And those judges did exactly that. Now in verse 9, when Nephi saw that the people had repented and did humble themselves in sackcloth, he cried again unto the Lord. He prayed that the cycle would go from pride and wickedness to destruction, and now watching that their destruction led to their repentance and humility, he's now praying that that might lead to deliverance. And his prayer is a fairly long one, especially considering that he's got the sealing power. He's got the blank check, but again, I'm, I'm going to act like I don't. Remember the old saying, work like it all depends on you, but pray like it all depends on God? Nephi's doing that. Nephi's prayer itself lasts from verse 10 through verse 16, and it is beautiful to see a prophet pleading with the Lord. Not just pleading, interceding for his people, the way Moses interceded for the people when he was on Sinai, the way Jesus intercedes for all of us. Notice how Nephi prays. O Lord, behold, this people repenteth. They have swept away the band of Gadianton from amongst them, insomuch that they have become extinct, and they have concealed their secret plans in the earth. Notice he's appealing not just to God's mercy in forgiving them, but to his justice because they have repented. It's like they are fulfilling their part of the promise. Will you fulfill your part as well? Of course we know you will. But I love that here is Nephi explaining to God Things that God already knows, obviously, but vouching for the people. They are repenting of their sins. They're sorry. This is a good lawyer for the defense. Not trumping up claims of innocence that do not apply, but rather explaining the people's repentance. And because of that, verse 11, because of this, their humility, wilt thou turn away thine anger? You see, they finally shifted to the Lord's side of the pride cycle. Can it now work in their favor instead of working against them? They've turned to humility. Wilt thou now turn away thine anger? Pull them away from destruction because they've pulled themselves away from wickedness. 
Verse 12, O Lord, wilt thou turn away thine anger, yea, thy fierce anger, and cause that this famine may cease in this land. Notice, by the way, how often Nephi says, wilt thou. Again, honoring God's authority. This is not me writing on the blank check. This is me asking you, wilt thou. He says it in 11 and 12 and 13 and 16. Verse 14, O Lord, thou didst hearken unto my words when I said, let there be a famine that the pestilence of the sword might cease. And I know that thou wilt, even at this time, hearken unto my words, for thou sayest that if this people repent, I will spare them. In other words, Nephi is saying, Heavenly Father, I only want you to do what you planned to do, what you promised you would do. I want you to follow your will, not mine. I'm just here to report on my stewardship for these people, that they are beginning to do thy will. They are repenting of their sins. He's not twisting the divine arm, saying, well, you said you'd do this, so now you have to. It's, wilt thou keep thy word? I know that thou art a God of truth. Is now the time? On their behalf, I plead with thee. Verse 15, again pointing to their repentance. Thou seest that they have repented because of the famine and the pestilence and the destruction which has come unto them. The pride cycle has served its purpose. And now, O Lord, wilt thou turn away thine anger? Spin the chair one more round and try again if they will serve thee. I love the way he puts that. Lord, will you try again with us? Because we are trying again with ourselves. I testify that God will always try again when we do. It's always us who gives up first. As long as we keep trying, God will keep trying in return. If so, O Lord, thou canst bless them according to thy words, which thou hast said. This is not a pump-up speech from the prophet to the Lord. This is not giving God permission to do anything. We'll see this more clearly when we meet the brother of Jared. When he asks for a miracle and says to the Lord, Thou canst do this. By which I think he meant, I'm not saying this to reassure you that you really can do this. I'm letting you know of my faith in thee. I know that you're able to do that. This is saying more about the brother of Jared than about God. This here is saying more about Nephi than about the Lord. Now we saw prosperity go to pride. We saw pride go to destruction. We saw destruction go to repentance. Now we get to see repentance go to deliverance. Verse 17, The Lord did turn away his anger from the people and caused that rain should fall upon the earth insomuch that it did bring forth her fruit in the season of her fruit. It did bring forth her grain in the season of her grain, just like Nephi had prayed a few verses earlier. But I do love the slow, natural cycle. This time the growth cycle, to complement the pride cycle we've been studying. It's not a matter of we repented today and our pantries are full tomorrow. No, it's a matter of we are repenting And God is now allowing the rain to fall. We still have to plant the seeds. We still have to wait for them to grow. We still have to harvest the fruit. There's still some hungry days ahead. But at least the gifts of heaven are beginning to rain down upon us once again. I think there's something beautiful there. As if the Lord is saying, My children, I need you to relearn the law of the harvest. You sowed pride and wickedness and reaped destruction. You are now sowing humility and repentance and will reap prosperity. But you have to have faith in these things. Because sometimes destruction doesn't happen immediately. Otherwise, who would sin? 
And sometimes deliverance doesn't happen in the moment. Otherwise, who wouldn't come to the Lord? There has to be time to develop patience and faith. So while your gardens are growing, I hope you're planting seeds of faith in the soul and not just the soil. I promise there will soon be a harvest of food. I hope you are equally eager to produce a harvest of faith. Well, even in the meantime, the people are rejoicing in verse 18. Rejoicing and glorifying God. The whole face of the land was filled with rejoicing. They did no more seek to destroy Nephi, but they did esteem him as a great prophet and a man of God, having great power and authority given unto him from God. And then this beautiful aside, verse 19. Oh yeah, Lehi, the one we don't get to hear much about, but the one who always seems to be by his brother Nephi's side. Lehi, his brother, was not a wit behind him as to things pertaining to righteousness. I hope we recognize that in people that we don't tend to recognize. That being the most well-known doesn't automatically make someone the most well-favored. That greater reputation does not necessarily equate to greater righteousness. That not being in the spotlight doesn't mean that you do not know the light of the world. God is aware of every contribution and the less known are not the less noble. I hope we can look past the outward accolades, titles or positions, and recognize that sometimes it is the quiet service, the anonymous acts of kindness that make such a difference in people's lives, such that God would say, that person that you don't know is not one whit behind that other person that you do. If you're a Nephi, Remember that about the Lehi's all around you. And don't let pride start you on a spin cycle. And conversely, if you're a Lehi, I hope you know that you are known of God and your contributions are valued by him and that you are not one whit behind anyone else. If Mormon had granted us more than the 100th part, I'm sure we could have chapters and chapters on Lehi's contribution that would be equally worth reading. Well, I wish we could end the chapter there, but we can't. There's still more rounds of the pride cycle to pass through. In verse 20, you see words like prosper again, build up, multiply, cover the land. 21 is peace and peace and exceedingly great peace. 22, they had peace, save it were, uh-oh, brace yourself. We're starting already to go from prosperity towards pride. Peace, save it were, a few contentions. But notice these particular contentions. In the past, it's always seemed to be over land or over power. Ambition and greed were the problems, right? But now, it's a few contentions concerning the points of doctrine which had been laid down by the prophets. Now, that's a fascinating form of pride. Orthodoxy. Do you see things the way I think you ought to see them? We'll see this clearly in a few weeks when we get to 3 Nephi chapter 11 that there can be disputation even over good things, establishing true doctrine. And yet, the Lord seems to favor unity even over orthodoxy. I'm not saying he doesn't like orthodoxy. This is my doctrine. There is no other doctrine, right? But the way we arrive at that, the way we preserve it and protect it, has to be done in the Lord's way. And that is not contentious. 
So beware of even that kind of doctrine starting to come in. If you're the doctrinal watchdog in your ward, great, but be very careful that you never become contentious in establishing points of doctrine. Verse 23, shortly thereafter, it led to much strife. Now, thankfully, that didn't last long. If the cycle is constantly pulling us towards pride, can we nip it in the bud and jump back over to the Lord's side of the cycle? Nephi and Lehi, along with many of their brethren, who I'm sure were not one whit behind them either, those who knew concerning the true points of doctrine, how do they know it? Having many revelations daily, they always checked it against the source, right? Capital S. Therefore, they did preach unto the people insomuch that they put an end to their strife in that same year. Great news. Unfortunately, the chapter doesn't end there either. Constant pull towards the adversary's side. 24, you meet certain number of dissenters. These had gone over to the Lamanites. They had taken upon themselves the name of Lamanites and then mixed with the true descendants of Laman and Lemuel. We're starting to see Lamanites by choice. We saw a little of that with Amalickiah and Ammaron in the war chapters, going from Nephite to Zoramite to bold Lamanite. But this is going to be important when we get to Samuel the Lamanite and then into 3rd Nephi. Lamanite by choice rather than by lineage. Kind of like the people of Ammon who become Nephites by choice instead of by lineage. 25, they commit murder and plunder. Then they retreat back into their secret places, hiding themselves so they can't be discovered. This is the secrecy and subtlety we saw with Kishkumen at the beginning of Helaman. This is trying to stay behind the facade in Johari's window. I don't want people to know about all that we're doing. And unfortunately, these secret bands keep growing. The secret's out. They receive daily in addition to their numbers, insomuch as there were dissenters that went forth unto them. Wickedness can snowball just like righteousness can. And 26, in the space of not many years, it doesn't take long, they became an exceedingly great band of robbers. They searched out the secret plans of Gadianton, and thus they became robbers of Gadianton. Remember just a few verses ago, as Nephi was explaining to the Lord the repentance of his people, he said the Gadianton robbers had become extinct, that their secret plans had been concealed in the earth. Well, unlike the anti-Nephi-Lehi's who buried their weapons of rebellion and never dug them up, these people unearthed those ancient secrets, dusted off the plans of Gadianton, and what had become extinct is now, unfortunately, alive and well, or, as we'd say, alive and not so well, wreaking havoc as before. 27, not just any old havoc, it's great havoc and great destruction among the people of Nephi, as well as among the people of the Lamanites. In the next few verses, armies are sent into the mountains to try to root out the Gadianton robbers, but they're unsuccessful. By the end of 31, those robbers infest the mountains and the wilderness. In 32, they increase and wax strong. They defy the armies of the Nephites and Lamanites and cause fear, great fear, to come unto the people upon all the face of the land. Now that bad news was not entirely bad, because in 34, as destruction often does, it prompted some to continue the pride cycle in the right direction by turning to the Lord. Now this great evil, which came unto the people because of their iniquity, did stir them up again in remembrance of the Lord their God. However, by 36, they began again to forget the Lord their God. They began to wax strong in iniquity, and they did not mend their ways. 37, they waxed stronger and stronger in their pride, and in their wickedness, and thus they were ripening again for destruction. By now, I hope that both I 
and Mormon can be forgiven if we take a second and sigh or let off a little steam of frustration. After everything we've been through so far in 11 chapters of Helaman, are you not a little frustrated yourself? Seriously? Over and over and over again? I mean, the way chapter 11 ends is the worst because it happens so quickly. Oh, they're getting destroyed. Oh, but they're repenting and remembering. Oh, but then they forget. The, really? That quick? It's almost like the pride cycle is getting faster and faster with less time in prosperity before it swings back towards destruction. These are painful realizations. By now, if you've got, read it fast enough, especially, I hope we can be forgiven for our frustration. I actually remember years ago, I was going to teach Old Testament in the seminary year coming up, and it was during the summer, and I was trying to prepare. I'd read the Old Testament before, but realized if I want it to be fresh in my mind, I just want to read it all over again to have all that momentum going into the school year. I checked the calendar and realized, well, if I read about a book a day, I can finish the Old Testament before school starts again. And so I started. I was flying. 50 chapters of Genesis in one day. Yeah, that's a lot of reading. 40 chapters of Exodus. On to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. I was flying. I looked forward to days like Obadiah. There's a chapter. Dreaded things like 66 chapters of Isaiah. He's hard to understand even when you go slow. But I still remember the day I read the book of Judges. And I had an experience with it that I don't think I would have had if I'd been reading a chapter a day. Because the book of Judges, probably more than any other single book in the Bible, is the pride cycle. It's kind of like the Bible's equivalent of the book of Helaman, where the pride cycle is played out before you so clearly. In fact, each new judge in the book of Judges is a new round of the pride cycle. The judge was called up by God to be the deliverer of Israel because they had finally repented from their last destruction. And so that judge, based on the righteousness of the people, their newly humbled, repentant souls, that judge would lead them against the enemy and deliver them from the Philistines or whomever. But it only lasted a certain amount of time until their prosperity and deliverance led to pride and then to wickedness and to destruction until they finally licked their wounds and mended their ways, cried out to God for deliverance, and he raised up another judge. Now, like I said, if you go slowly through the book of Judges, you don't see the same cycle repeat quite so frequently. But sit down and read it in one sitting, and you'll get dizzy. Seriously. I did. And by the end, I was so frustrated with Israel. In fact, I was kind of frustrated with God. I remember thinking, seriously? You're going to forgive him again? No, really? Another judge? You know it's going to happen. Just give it another couple verses. They're going to fall. Oh, see? Yep, already happened. Why? Why do you keep giving them second, third, 15th, 20th chances? You know they're going to blow it again. And right then, mid-complaint, the Spirit whispered very forcibly to me, because I do the same thing with you. And that woke me up. Because I go through my life so slowly that I don't seem to recognize the pride cycles, the rounds adding up. Sit down and watch it all at once, and you'd get dizzy watching my life unfold. And I am so grateful that God delivers me yet again. Let's try it again. Let's go for another spin. I'll try again, Jared, if you will. Maybe this time you'll stay a little longer on my side of the line. In fact, one of these rounds, you'll decide to stay with me forever. I am grateful for that personal reassurance to help offset all of the frustration I sometimes feel with myself as well as with those I see in Scripture.
Mormon seems to have a similar experience because by the time he is done abridging this record and putting the pen down, he then interrupts the narrative and in chapter 12 gives the longest thus we see interruption in the entire Book of Mormon. You see chapter 11 ends, thus ended the 80 and 5th year. And chapter 13, skip over 12, begins, and now it came to pass in the 80 and 6th year. See what Mormon as a historian is doing? Finishing one chapter on this year, next chapter begins with the next year. What is chapter 12 all about? Again, the narrative will flow more smoothly if you get rid of this chapter. But leave it in and you see Mormon poking through the text. A historian that cannot hold his peace. I have to break that fourth wall. Stare into the camera. No more anonymous chronicler. I want to speak to you readers to make sure you're seeing what I see. Elder Irene gave a beautiful talk years ago called, And Thus We See, and he pointed out how generous Mormon was in making that pronoun plural. Not just saying, and this is what I see through my prophetic eyes. No, this is what we see if we'll have the eyes to see it. This is a lesson I think the Lord is trying to teach all of us. Do you see this too? And so in chapter 12, verse 1 starts, Thus we can behold. Middle of verse 1, yea, we can see. Beginning of 2, yea, and we may see. That's what chapter 12 will be all about. These are the things that Mormon and a discerning Book of Mormon reader will see based on what we've studied so far in the Book of Helaman. First thing he hopes we see is our bad news. How false and how unsteady are the hearts of the children of men. That's what we're up against. The old joke is that the one Christian doctrine that does have empirical evidence of its truthfulness is the fall. Because look at us. Look at how we treat each other. Look at how we act. It does not take prophetic vision to see the false and unsteady hearts within each of us. But what else can we see? Same verse. We can see that the Lord in his great infinite goodness, and it has to be infinite because we are constantly draining the supply drawing upon that goodness. Thank heavens it is infinite. And in that great infinite goodness, the Lord doth bless and prosper those who put their trust in him. So in spite of who we are, our falseness and unsteadiness, do we know who God is, his infinite goodness, his desire to bless and prosper us? That's the segment of the pride cycle. He wants to keep us in eternally. Eternal progression would be eternal prosperity, after all. But, based on all these rounds of the pride cycle we've seen through the book of Helaman, verse 2, we may see at the very time when he doth prosper his people, yea, in the increase of their fields and flocks, and lists all kinds of beautiful blessings he pours down upon us, doing all things for the welfare and happiness of his people. Yea, then is the time that they do harden their hearts, the swivel chair has just turned. They harden their hearts and forget the Lord their God. They trample under their feet the Holy One. And this because of their ease and their exceedingly great prosperity. Again, this is Mormon's great moral of the story. And he is spelling out the pride cycle, spin by spin. Verse 3, thus we see that except the Lord doth chasten his people with many afflictions, yea, except he doth visit them with death and with terror and with famine and with all manner of pestilence, they will not remember him. 
the natural consequence of sin has to be destruction because the natural consequence of prosperity doesn't seem to be remembering God. It seems to be forgetting Him. The great John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, as he was trying to revive Anglicanism, feared that no revival would ever be permanent because as soon as we turn to God, He blesses us and in our blessings we forget Him. Wesley understood the pride cycle as well. Verse 4 through 6, what is wrong with us? How foolish, how vain, how evil and devilish, how quick to do iniquity and slow to do good, quick to hearken to the words of the evil one, set their hearts on the vain things of the world, quick to be lifted up in pride, quick to boast, quick to do all manner of iniquity, but slow to remember the Lord their God, to give ear to his counsels, how slow to walk in wisdom's paths. It almost seems like you need to take the pride cycle, this merry-go-round that we always seem to be spinning on, and tilt it. Because there seems to be a downward slope where things happen quickly, how quick we are to forget. And yet this other uphill swing, it takes so much longer, it's so much slower on our part. No wonder God had to let the fruit and grain grow. You've got to learn that some things take time and deal with this slow spin. In fact, try to level out or even reverse the tilt on the pride cycle. If we could be quicker to remember God, yes, I messed up again, but I was faster at recognizing my need to repent. Or I was doing so well and then I fell, but I was doing so well for so much longer than usual. I'm getting quicker to remember God and slower to forget Him. Again, reverse the angle, tilt it the other way. Verse 6, again, part of our problems. They do not desire that the Lord their God who hath created them should rule and reign over them. And this, in spite of his great goodness and his mercy towards them, they set it not his counsels and will not that he should be their guide. Take Nephi as the personification of the opposite. Remember what God had said about him in giving him the sealing power. I know you won't do anything with it, that would be contrary to my will. You've proven that. From verse 7 through verse 19, Mormon then continues this lament about what humanity in its fallen nature is like. And he compares it in verse 7 to the dust of the earth. How great is the nothingness of the children of men. In other words, as we're studying the pride cycle, what do we have to be proud of? Compared to God, we're nothing. That was King Benjamin's message. He lends you breath, right? That's how lowly we are. We don't even own the air we breathe. We are less than the dust of the earth, he says in verse 7. And then he explains it in verse 8, which is amazing. Most of the time when we try to explain what does it mean to be less than the dust of the earth, we talk about, well, we were made from, from mortal physical element. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust, right? Adam created symbolically from the dust of the earth. Well, that's all we are. We're just dirt. But I love how Mormon explains. What's his take on dust of the earth? Verse 8, Behold, the dust of the earth moveth hither and thither to the dividing asunder at the command of our great and everlasting God. And then he goes through a slew of verses giving examples of that. If God tells a mountain to tremble and quake, it will. If he tells that mountain to disappear and become a valley instead, that's what happens. Over and over in this passage, it's the voice of God that does it. His voice in 9, his voice in 10, his voice in 11, his voice in 12, if he says in 13, if he says in 14. 
and 15, according to his word. Verse 16, if he says, 17, if he says, 18, if the Lord says, 19, if the Lord says, 20, if he says, 21, if he says, all of this, this long extended passage, if God says something to dirt, dirt obeys. Go reread the creation account in the book of Abraham. It's so cool in its differences between Genesis and Moses. In that one, more than any other, it almost suggests the agency of element itself. Because it talks about God commanding the elements in creation and then watching them until they obey. I love that. It's like there was some obstinate dirt particle. and so No, I, I got my eye on you. See and land? I said divide. And I'll stay here until you do. My wife and I always quote Abraham when we ask our kids to do something and then leave them unsupervised. When we come back and what we ask them to do has still not been done, oh yeah, the book of Abraham taught us differently. I have to see that I am obeyed. Kids are getting better at that. I'm still not sure if they're up to dust level, but they're on their way. See how Mormon is doing this? We're less than the dust of the earth because the dust does what God tells it to. Do we? All that talk about his voice, his word, him saying things. What's Nephi been doing this whole time? Speaking for God, crying repentance. Will we listen? What pulls us to God's side of the pride cycle? We hear and heed the voice of God through him, through his spirit, through his servants, through his scriptures. We respond. What pulls us away from him in the very day that he prospers us? We plug our ears. We harden our hearts. We shut our eyes to the glorious light all around us. We decide that for some reason we're better than dirt and we don't have to listen to God. We don't have to move hither and thither at the command of our great and everlasting God. What's interesting in this long passage is over and over when he's talking about the elements of the earth, it always obeys. Human beings seem to be the exception of that, except when you get to 20 and 21. In this instance, if the Lord shall say unto a man, because of thine iniquities thou shalt be accursed forever, then it shall be done. God's will is imposed instead of just offered. 21, very similarly, if the Lord shall say, because of thine iniquities thou shalt be cut off from my presence, that's the ultimate curse of God, right? He will cause that it shall be so. There's a tragic irony that the only time God's will will be done on humanity is in an area that it's not his will to be done. I don't want to condemn you. I don't want to cut you off from my presence. My whole work and glory is to bring you home immortality and eternal life. But you have forced that will upon you by refusing to yield your will to mine. Remember back in 2 Nephi 2 when Lehi is explaining agency to his son. And he says, God has created two types of things, things that act and things that are acted upon, agents and objects, in other words. Which are the elements of the earth? Well, we would say objects. That seems to be the case in this passage. Though Abraham might say, well, there's some agency even there. But humanity, God's sons and daughters, now those are agents through and through. They've been created to act, not be acted upon. And Lehi would agree with that, with one exception. He says in 2 Nephi 2 that the only time that men are acted upon is when they are judged for their deeds. 
That seems to be the suggestion in Helaman 12, 20 and 21. God's will had to be worked upon them. And like I said before, sadly, tragically, it was never God's will that that take place. I meant for you to act, but to act in accordance with my will. This is not some weird end around. This isn't God trying to trick us into doing what he wanted us to do all along. It's trying to retrain our reflexes. Mighty change of heart, born again, like we've seen over and over again in the Book of Mormon. He has to wean us off our own will, reconcile our will to his, so that when he offers us the gift of salvation, we don't put our dukes up. We don't fight him anymore. We yield. We surrender. That's what God is asking of us. It's what he intends for us. It's what defines himself. God acts. He's not acted upon. He wants his children to grow up in him and learn to do likewise. And so Mormon concludes this interruption, better yet, this explanation of what he's been trying to teach us through this history. Woe unto him to whom he shall say this, for it shall be unto him that will do iniquity, and he cannot be saved. He can't be, as much as God would want it to be otherwise. Therefore, for this cause, that men might be saved, hath repentance been declared. Remember the conditions of repentance we've seen several places in the Book of Mormon. God has laid out those conditions so that there's hope for us to come home. Therefore, 23, blessed are they who will repent and hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God, for these are they that shall be saved. Once you know that difference, those who cannot be saved versus those who will be, all based on the conditions of repentance, then verse 24 becomes the highlight. May God grant in his great fullness. Remember, we saw his infinite goodness. It never runs out. Well, his great fullness, you'll never completely tax his patience. His grace will never run dry. May he grant in that gratefulness that men might be brought unto repentance and good works, that they might be restored unto grace for grace according to their works. That's the goal. I want you back into this right relationship. I want you on my side of the pride cycle so that the spins, the rotations, just bring you back to greater and greater prosperity and greater and greater righteousness. Remember we saw that earlier? They waxed stronger and stronger in their humility and firmer and firmer in their faith. And so God could pour out his blessings upon them. That's what grace for grace is all about. See, there's a passage in section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants that's a little confusing. Once you get it, it's an incredible thought. Section 93 talks about grace for grace, same phrase as this, but also adds grace to grace until we receive a fullness. He uses those phrases to describe how the Savior progressed and received his fullness and how he expects us or invites us to progress to become more like him. Now, for the grace to grace, picture a staircase. And for the grace for grace, picture an exchange. When it's grace for grace, let's say you're on a certain step on the staircase. You're at a certain level and the Lord offers you his grace. And then holds back and sees, what will you do with it? Grace, after all, is enabling power. So what is it enabling you 
to do. Not to earn salvation. You didn't earn the grace to begin with. I'm giving it to you. It's a gift. But here, when it's according to their works, that's the idea of what are you going to do with the grace that you've been given. This is like the parable of the talents. I've given you five. What will you do with it? Or I've given you two. What step are you on? Oh, you're on the one talent step versus the two or the five? That's great. No problem. No rush on my end. I got, believe me, I'm eternal. I got all day. But wherever you happen to be, here is grace, free gift, because I love you. What will you do with it? Will you respond with grace to my grace? In fact, will you return grace for grace with whatever measure of increase you might muster? Heavenly Father, look what I did with thy grace. I repented. I tried again, and I tried harder. I forgave. I loved. I served. I pulled weeds and planted flowers. I took what you offered me and cast it upon the waters. I fed multitudes with thy loaves and fishes. I did everything that I could. And thine be the glory. Here is your grace with increase. It's amazing what God does to multiply his gifts to us. But having returned grace for grace, we're then ready to progress from grace to grace all along the path to God's fullness. Oh, you've done more. You're prepared for greater grace that I can give you, trusting that you will give it back to me. And grace for grace, progressing grace to grace, eventually we receive a fullness. That's the cycle God wants us to be on. That's eternal progression. Otherwise, the opposite outcome awaits. 25 and 26 end on kind of a sad note. Those that refuse grace, that do not bring forth repentance or good works, those are the ones that will be cast off from the presence of the Lord. The cycle will pull them away instead of bringing them home. The choice is ours. We can do good and have everlasting life, or we can do evil and have everlasting damnation. Thus it is. Amen, he ends, and then picks up the history again. Again, this is his aside the thus we seize, and the amen at the end. This is it. Thus it is. I'm seeing it. Are you seeing it? I hope we're seeing it clearly. That is the moral of the story so far in the book of Helaman. Round after round of the spin cycle, until hopefully we stop on the Lord's side of the line. Perhaps my favorite little phrase is what Mormon interjects at the beginning of verse 25. I would that all men might be saved. Why do you think I'm spending a lifetime abridging scripture in hopes that the voice of God will tell you pieces of dust to move and that you'll move towards him, that you'll accept his grace and return it to him. Heaven wants you home. I would that all men might be saved. Can you hear God saying that? He sent his son to back it up. Can you picture Jesus Christ saying that? He gave his life to back it up. Can you hear prophets in our day saying that? They are wasting and wearing out their lives to back it up. Brothers and sisters, what are we doing to back up our desires, our own salvation, and the salvation of others. If we would that all men might be saved, then join them and cry repentance 
and then respond to that cry yourself. Change. The Lord is waiting for us on his side of the cycle. That's what we'll see if we have eyes to see him ready to welcome us home.